Thank you. Thanks, Elise. Uh, and I did get a chance to read that story. Olivia, she leads in worship here often, and I learned so much, and I've, I've known her for years, and since she's become a part of our community, but just taking a few moments, I, I would encourage you to take the time and read those stories. We are a church that's filled with people. We're not just an institution. We want to grow in knowing one another so we can love one another and serve one another and together fulfill the law of Jesus. Well, um, my name is Jose, and it's so good to be back. Uh, last weekend, as Ryan said, uh, when he was teaching that Carmen and I were able to get away, it was her uh, 50th birthday, and I could say that because she's not like hiding it, and she looks 29. So, and everyone goes like, she's, she's what? I'm like, yeah, it's like on the birth certificate and everything. She married an old guy. Um, I'm just like, 18 months older, but anyway. Uh, so it was so good to be back in New York. We were born and raised. We met there in church, and we married there, and then made our way to the West Coast eventually. So it was just good to be home and talk a little more like this and eat real pizza and, uh, and be rude and fast. It was, it was awesome. I was like, I love the city. And, uh, and, and her dream was to see Hamilton on Broadway, and we were able to do that. And it was a real, real gift. And we, uh, we were thinking and reflecting. We've, um, she's 50 and we've been together for 36 years, five years dating. And it'll be 31 years married uh, come June the 5th. I know. And so it's a gift. Not everyone is given that to be able to be with someone for so long. So I feel just so blessed. And at the same token, it is good to be home. All right. So we're going to continue in our series on relationships and we hit this point, if you're new to our church, we have been looking through 1 Corinthians, a letter written to a real church. And in chapter five, he has to speak really clearly to them because the way they're living out their relationships in terms of their human relationships with one another had gone off. And so because of that, and because of our cultural moment where in the last just 10 years in Oregon's history, a marriage has been redefined. And everything in, if you're an educator, you know, curriculum is changing by the minute and how we understand human relationships. We thought it would be good to pause and slow down and to ground ourselves in what the Bible says and how to have honest conversations about the way of Jesus and a biblical worldview and human sexuality. And so here's the caveat, and we're saying it every single week, literally, and I'm going to pause for a moment so you hear these words. We have to listen to all eight weeks. We have to listen to all of this because uh, as I've said and I've seen in my own life and in the lives of others, we feel first, we think later. And so some of the things that we're gonna talk about today and next week in particular, feelings are gonna well up. They just are because we're human. And whenever you talk about human things that are close and near and dear to the heart, your heart, your family's heart, your worldview's heart. You're, you feel first, not even wondering if your feelings are grounded in what's true, but we give ourselves time to feel. We don't ignore that, but that's why we're doing it for eight weeks so we have real conversations with our friends in safe spaces and homes to wrestle with what the Bible's saying and then to learn from one another, to ask good questions, to be willing to agree to disagree on some points and hopefully grow as followers of Jesus together. And uh, Now, I, I do want to say today and next week, because some of you, every week we have people visiting as just guests for the weekend. Uh, we, we've hit a point in our conversation 
where if you have younger kids that are with you in the room, I'm just gonna let you know, we're being very thoughtful in how we prepare this, so we speak to whole families. But today's conversation, I'm not gonna be graphic, but we're gonna use terms you're probably not using at your dinner table. And so I just wanna be really respectful, right? I'm gonna continue with some intro here. If you feel like, ooh, this is not, this is not a good timing for our family to have that, it is okay to get up and slip out and watch from the lobby or put your kids in our kids' classes or even just slip out today and say, I'm gonna watch online, but I, I don't know if our family is ready to have this discussion. That's okay, okay? The last thing I want for you as a mom or a dad or a grandparent or anyone with a younger person is saying, I wish I would have let me know what was gonna be said because I, I wouldn't have sat there with my young person. This would not have been good. There's love, there's respect. No one is gonna think anything bad or poorly of you, okay? Um, but all these conversations have been connected. So I'm gonna do a real quick review because they build line upon line. First, we talked about worldview. Everyone has a worldview. What's a worldview? A worldview is a web of habit-forming beliefs about the biggest questions of life that helps you make sense of all your experience. It's not like you find a worldview. You have a worldview. The question is, what informs your worldview? And we looked in that first week at the importance of realizing if you're a follower of Jesus, you are invited, you're called to grow into a biblical or a Christian worldview. That is, your biggest questions to be answered primarily by what does God say about this? And then I think about what I think, and then I lean in on what God says. Because if you follow the way of Jesus, then the first line of the Bible applies to you. In the beginning, what? God. And if God is the creator, and here's a big worldview question, if you're wondering what's a worldview, who has the right to make the final decision in your life? And if the answer is God, then that is leaning in on a biblical worldview. If the answer is me, that is not a biblically informed worldview, because as created ones, we don't get the ultimate authority, we have some authority, but our authority submits to God's authority. Okay, so we, then we looked at a biblical worldview on marriage, and I'm just gonna recap. We did this two weeks ago. We believe that the term marriage has only one meaning, the uniting of one natural-born man and one natural-born woman in a single exclusive union as delineated in Scripture. The first reference was from Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Go listen in if you missed it. And there's already pull on that. And if you disagree with that statement, it is okay to disagree. But as a church community, we are choosing to follow a biblical worldview. And a biblical worldview says that God defines marriage, we don't define marriage, and our state conflicts with this definition. And that is okay to live in a world where there are conflicts in ideas. Yet we're gonna have to choose to say which direction are we gonna live into, which worldview are we gonna believe, and this is where we land as a local church. Okay, that's not new, that was... That was two weeks ago. Then last week we built on it and Ryan helped us to see a, a biblical vision for what sexual morality and immorality is. And here's the statement. We believe that God intends sexual intimacy to occur only between a natural born man and a natural born woman who are married to each other. And there are the texts. And we, we believe that God has commanded that no intimate sexual activity be engaged outside of marriage between a man and a woman. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 
to 10. And we haven't even looked at that yet. We're purposely going to come back and look at that in a few weeks. But that means that everything outside of God's vision is a biblical word called porneia. Uh, sexual immorality is translated in English is, is the translation of a Greek word, which has also Hebrew implications, but it's, there's God's design. Everything outside of God's design is not the way God designed. And, and, and so we're all wrestling with uh, an ethic, a way of living that is in alignment with the way of Jesus. And, and just hear me. The heart here is that we would grow closer to Jesus in following him. That's the heart. And so as we look at, especially this week and next week in particular, you're going to find some dimensions of your thinking that are going to be absolutely in conflict with what I'm going to say. And that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Hear me out is all I'm asking. I'm asking that you hear the full story and that you engage in conversation with people around you and you wrestle with the Bible. Because if we know God through many means, we know God through creation, but we know what God is like clearly through the scriptures. And we know what God is like clearly and most clearly through the person of Jesus who affirmed the scriptures and upheld the Bible as the word of God. So, so I have to look at these questions not in light of just opinion, personal feeling. I feel this. Well, I feel lots of things. But are my feelings in alignment with, with reality? As God defines reality, I have to ask myself these questions. This is good for us, by the way. Um, this is healthy for us, and it's why we're going really slow, because I've never been a part of a church community that's gone really slow and talked about this stuff, and it just matters. It really, really matters. So now here's today's question, and this is where, again, moms and dads or those caring for young kids, you may want to think, do you want to hang out for the rest of this? Uh, what do the scriptures teach about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual, LGBTQIA+, and other expressions that are so common today. Um, what do the scriptures teach uh, about this? And by the way, all of us have seen the letters expand, haven't we? And so, all, so and this is why this matters. These are questions that are evolving. We're living not in a static time, we're living in a time of, transition as a culture and in the world. And so what, is, what we want to do as Jesus people, and, 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 and we, here's the premise. I'm going to look more at these individual dimensions next week to get clear definitions so we know what we're talking about and, and be biblically informed and culturally aware, right? So we'll do that next week. Today's more of a biblical overview because you always start with the text. You always start with the Bible and then let culture be evaluated in light of what we know in the Bible. Um, but we know that this is a junk drawer term that's been put together because every expression here is unique and quite different, especially when you look at intersex, which is more biology than the other expressions. So we, want, we don't want to just broad these, uh, paint these broad strokes and throw everyone into one category, realizing every one of these express an individual person's experience, which is quite different from the other. And, and, and by the way, as I've had lots of conversations between people in the community, people in this community don't even all agree on the definitions within the community. So, so this is not like one huge unified group. 
but this is a category of people who are asking to be heard. So here's what I'm going to do, and I need you to hear this clearly because I don't want you to get offended unnecessarily. I'm going to use the term gay in light of all of these, just because it's just really long. And by that, I don't mean to minimize any one of these expressions, but I'm just going to say what the scriptures say. And when I use the word gay, I'm, I'm, I'm using it in a broad sense, and, and it's just going to shorten the conversation. So please don't be offended by that. I, I'm, I, allow me that if you would. Okay, so here's what we want to do. There are five passages in the Bible that speak to today's culture. And so I want to look today just at the five and then start to answer some implications just at the beginning. And next week is going to be primarily, we're going to look at the life of Jesus again, and then we're going to look at real questions you have been asking about all of these questions. And just listen and disagree in soul if that's how you feel, and that's okay. Have these discussions with others. And if you want to chat, I am, I'm happy to chat as well. But anyone on our team can, and anyone in your community group can. These things matter. The first two are connected, and when you hear them, they're going to immediately sound offensive. I'm just saying, they're in the Bible, and they're both in an ancient book called Leviticus. So we'll go there first. Uh, Leviticus 18.22, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Let's just hear the Bible. (laughs) You just heard that. And that at first, at first is going to sound culturally offensive. Leviticus 20.13. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They'll be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Those aren't mild words. And if you've never read the Bible, you're gonna find places in the Bible where you hear things or read things that just sound so foreign to today's reality. Here's gonna be the immediate idea. That must be old and useless. So it's easy just to reject something without taking a careful look at it. Now, here's what we do know. Both of them seem very straightforward, whether you agree with them or not, right? They they just seem to be clear. And both of them speak to what we looked at the other week in Genesis 1 and 2, where God lays out a framework for marriage, that a natural-born man and a natural-born woman are to come together, leave family, cling to each other, and in that, offer their lives to God and become one flesh, married. And then you read statements like this and think, well, wait a minute. I have more questions than answers, and you're not alone. Write this down real quick. I've really, there have been lots of helpful books. I've read a lot on this um, topic, and I've been thinking and reflecting for years. This is not a new discussion for me. It might be for you. Maybe you've never thought about what the Bible has to say to these things. That's okay. But we're going to have this conversation together. The most helpful book for me that, that uplifts and upholds the Bible and tries to give an honest description of all of these texts with real insight and thorough background, uh, which we can't do on a Sunday morning, is a book by a man named Dr. Preston Sprinkle. The book is called People to be Loved, why homosexuality is not just an issue. It's a small investment of money, and, and I would encourage you to pick up that resource and to thoughtfully and carefully read it because he is a Bible scholar 
who's asking honest questions about the Bible, and it will trace through for you what all, more supplemental information that we can't do on a Sunday morning. But here's, let's just get to Leviticus, because I want to get through these five. Um, we got to ask some key questions. First question, do these verses apply to people who are in a gay committed and consensual relationship or not? When you read these one or two lines from this book called Leviticus, this book of laws, statutes, guidelines that were for a very real people called ancient Israel, God gave them these words on how to live in relationship with him and with one another. You have to ask, that was written for an ancient people. Is this actually talking about people who love one another and are committed to one another? Or is it more about stopping casual sex? Is that, like, when God writes this to these people, what is God writing about? Is it about casual relationship? Or is it about avoiding detestable relationship that everyone in every culture would agree with, like rape and incest? Is this, is this about people who just fall in love and want to get married. Here's what I want us to notice in Leviticus, because if you read the text, it's quite clear. There are no qualifiers here. In other words, when, when, he, when God gives these statutes, these, these commands to God's people, he doesn't in any way say, well, if, then this applies. God simply says, this kind of behavior is not, is not my design. Another thing you're going to read, especially there are a lot of thinkers and writers who are reflecting on these passages who come to different conclusions. And one of them is a group of people who say, well, these passages don't apply, and here's why. What the ancient writers were receiving was about being against an ancient practice of temple prostitution. That is, that part of people who didn't follow the way of Jesus, part of their worship was graphic. You would go to the temple and in connection with the gods, you would sleep with these committed people that were like an intermediary and you would have relationship with them. And in that, that was a form of worship. And so what God's saying in Leviticus is actually against this temple practice where a guy would go and sleep with another guy or a lady would sleep with another lady. And that's what it's really speaking to. It's speaking to a narrow cultural issue that most people don't practice today. The only problem, and you are gonna see this if you read texts and textbooks that say uh, we should affirm fully any and every behavior in the banner of love and the way of Jesus, which is a, which is a position we just don't hold, you're gonna see this used as an argument. Here's the problem from history. The practice of what they call cultic prostitution, a prostitution or sex within a religious framework was at the time of Jesus happening and in the Roman Empire happening and after Jesus was happening, but there is no record of this happening anywhere at the time of Moses. In other words, the argument that God is writing against these practices he wrote thousands of years before those practices were even happening. So it can't be that Leviticus is speaking to a practice that happened thousands of years ago. It's actually more clear and more straightforward than we want to admit. Why go into this like rabbit trail? It's because what you're gonna see, and I'm just warning you, what you're gonna see is more and more scholarship, background information from people with 
uh, a good degree of reading and thought that is going to try, and because from a cultural perspective, they may feel like, well, followers of Jesus aren't going to be accepting until we tear down what the Bible clearly says. And so you're going to see more biblical argumentation. But here's the good news. If it's true, it will stick. And you just can't argue in that way, intellectually being honest. And so that line of argument doesn't work. It means we need to read the scriptures carefully and thoughtfully. It does not mean you need to become an expert. But it does mean you need to read carefully from people who actually believe the Bible and have thought through we're all on the same team, right? Okay. Uh, second question is, does, do these verses in Leviticus still apply to Jesus followers? Because there's a line of reasoning that says, well, that was the old covenant, the covenant of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David. But now, because of Jesus, we live under the new agreement. So I don't have to listen to Leviticus anymore. And that's, now, this is why you should go to learn it and give it. Because you'll learn how to study the Bible well. And what you do realize when you learn how to actually study the Bible is that there are parts of Leviticus that were written for ancient Israel. And those mostly have to do with how they worship. Do you know in Leviticus, you see exactly how the the tabernacle and temple are to be constructed. How worship, what a priest is supposed to wear. And those practices in light of Jesus, yes, they were for them how they were to have government. They were a theocracy. God was the king. And under God's rule, Israel lived under these government legislative rules that were listed in Leviticus. So some of the things when it comes to how people are to interact in government, yes, in light of Jesus, that was for them. And we live in a new way, in a new covenant. But you read the Bible in light of the Bible. And so here's what you find in the Bible. Wherever you see something written early, I want to ask myself, is it repeated and affirmed later? Is it, is it still valid later? Does it get corrected later? Or is it never mentioned later? I need to ask, as a thinker, what does the Bible say about itself? You interpret the Bible in light of the Bible. If this is like Bible 101, I'm not apologizing. We need Bible 101. Because some of us haven't learned to study the Bible We've only read the Bible devotionally. Like, Lord, give me a phrase so I can put it on a cup. And we forget we're handling the word of God. The word of God. That's holy. It's from him. And so what we do want to do is not get discouraged, but encouraged to grow in knowing the Bible. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to list from Leviticus 18 to 20, some laws that you see again in the Bible. Okay, tell me, are these things still allowable or should we still avoid them? These are all in Leviticus. Incest, is that now allowable? Adultery, child sacrifice, bestiality, theft, lying, taking the Lord's name in vain, oppressing your neighbor, cursing the deaf, showing partiality in the court of law, slander, hating your brother, making your daughter a prostitute, or turning to witches or witchcraft. All of those are listed in these chapters of Leviticus that I would dare say are repeated later in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as things we should avoid. And so there are parts of Leviticus that still apply today 
including, I would suggest, the ones I read earlier about same-sex relations. And so, okay, that's, we're learning to, how to interpret the Bible. All of those were still to avoid adultery and we're still to avoid incest and we shouldn't be involved in witchcraft. Leviticus speaks truth and some want to throw out these bits, but these are present later in the text. So let's talk about Jesus. What about Jesus? What did Jesus specifically say about being gay? And again, I'm using that in the broad sense of the term. Well, and this is where some writers who want to affirm any practice and still follow Jesus with integrity have made a claim, well, Jesus doesn't mention it. And in one small sense, technically, Jesus doesn't use the word gay or homosexuality, but there are lots of words he doesn't use, use bestiality either. He doesn't use incest either. There are lots of words that Jesus does not use, but the question is actually not, does Jesus, if Jesus doesn't use the term, therefore he thinks differently on it. Well, over two weeks, we have looked at Matthew 19. Ryan did a more in-depth thought on Matthew 19, where Jesus is asked about the nature of marriage and divorce. And we saw over the last two weeks that Jesus not only affirmed the one man, one woman covenant called marriage for life, but he does more than that. Jesus went before the statement about marriage to God created the male and female. And so Jesus clearly in discussion about human relationships and the way of God, Jesus upheld what had been taught all along. Jesus does not go against the historical understanding of the people of God he does not do it. Everything outside of one man, one woman in covenant relationship is porneia to Jesus. And so it's easy to argue from silence either way. But here, it's actually not arguing from silence. Jesus speaks to relationships and marriage and he affirms the biblical vision. And one other historical fact that's helpful you to know, I'd say take a picture of this because it's going to come up in conversations about Jesus. Every Jew, quote from Preston Sprinkle, every Jew who wrote on the subject 500 years before, 500 years after Christ, agreed on one thing. Same-sex relations were against the will of God. So this is where history isn't the defining thought. The Bible is the defining thought. But in history, no Jewish writer 500 years before Jesus said anything other than what Leviticus said. And 500 years after Jesus, and Jesus is in the tradition of people who are reading the Bible as the people of God had read it. There are things that are not, are not at the heart of God. Now, already, that can seem offensive. And so I just need you to feel, I'm giving you permission to be upset, as if you needed permission. But I want you to breathe deep and think, okay, maybe... There's something to what the Bible says. And then discuss this in your groups. All right, so we have before, the, before Jesus, Leviticus, and it's affirmed all throughout. We have in history, those who spoke about the Bible all affirmed what, what God said was right and was out of bounds. And then we have Jesus upholding the Bible. But what about the early church? Now, what about those after Jesus? How did the people of God understand this? And so we're going to read a few texts. I'm not going to give comment, but
but I want you to see all five, right? So we did the two in Leviticus. Now let's look at the New Testament. Romans 1. I'm gonna read a long passage, but I need you to see the context, right? Okay, this is probably the clearest passage in the New Testament about this topic. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Let me just pause. God created us to worship him and not idols and images All throughout the New Testament, idolatry is seen as against the heart of God. And and Paul summarizes, rather than serving God, we all go to idols. By the way, that's the story of the entire Old Testament. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over the sinful desires of their hearts to what? Sexual impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another. Those who throw off God as God end up doing what they want. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Now, because of this, because our hearts are full of idolatry and we do not worship the creator in a way that honors him, because of this, what? God gave them over and allowed them to have shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations with unnatural ones. In the same way, Men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we threw off God as God. We served created things, idols, instead of the creator. And God says, okay, if you don't want to worship me, I guess you're going to do what you want to do and this is the overflow, we end up taking a beautiful thing that God's created called sex and marriage and love, and we've made it in our own image. That's what he's saying. And we've done whatever we wanted to do. Now, what's the implication? Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a brave mind. So they do, they do what ought not to be done. They've been filled with, and look at the list, every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of, and look at the list, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They disobey their parents. I'm just saying it's in the list. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve those who practice them. And so, okay, there's a lot there, but I wanted to see what Paul's doing in Romans 1 through 3 needs to be read in one setting. And in Romans 1 through 3, before he gets to the good news as being good, you know what he says? We all need good news because everyone has sinned. Everyone. So when we look at a list, what we normally highlight is the thing that I don't do as sinful. Whenever I look at a list, I'm like, I don't do that. Only weird people do that. 
I always look at myself and say, man, I'm good. And I look over the things I do. So being boastful is on the list. Envying your friend's stuff is on the list. Disobedience to authority is on the list. There are a lot. Here's my point. We want to pull out the sexual stuff and ignore the rest of the list. Everyone is sin-filled. So we all deserve God's judgment. And the good news is Jesus pays for the judgment so that I can live in God's mercy and forgiveness by faith in Jesus alone. So we're all, we're all guilty. And that's, but in that list, it does include, I need you to see this, in line with Jesus, the early Christian writers uphold the sexual ethic of Genesis 1 and 2. It's consistent. And what people are going to repeatedly do is try to tear it down as cultural nuance. And those attempts will only continue, they'll only increase. But when we have a biblical theology, that is a theology that's informed by all of the Bible, we see one unified message that leads us to Jesus. So our sin has led, led to shameful lusts. And those lusts are all sorts, and there's all sorts of variety. But I want to tease out one bit. Let's throw up a, a QR code real quick. I did an hour-long message. That's the biggest QR code you'll ever see in your life. <laughs> and, 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 and I'll be clear, because I created it and, and didn't resize it. Take out your phone and click on it, because it is a podcast from 2016 from this church. When we walk through Romans verse by verse, we, we handle this, and it is in-depth. And rather than restate it years later, I'm inviting you to listen to it and, and there's explanation on the text, okay? So, um, so I encourage you to do that and then be blinded by the size of that QR code. All right, but the phrase here I want us to tease out today, which is not teased out in this podcast, is this phrase called paraphysin, which is, is translated in English, unnatural ones. They traded natural relations for unnatural ones. And that phrase has been debated and discussed among scholars to the nth degree. And I'm gonna save you a little time. Another quote from Preston Sprinkle on this phrase, because this phrase actually matters. What does it mean to have an unnatural relationship? Quote, paraphysin was simply stock language used in Roman and Jewish writers to condemn same-sex relations. Extramarital or marital, consensual, non-consensual, uh, pederistic, which is an older man taking on a younger boy for pleasure or peer. Paraphysin was used to critique same-sex relations as against the design of nature or in Paul's view, against the design and intention of the creator, end quote. Because some scholars are gonna say what Paul was talking about here was pedestry, which is was common in the practice in their day of older men having relationships with younger men for pleasure because they hadn't been tainted by adulthood. You could read blog after blog about that practice. Here's my point. This term is actually used about more than one nature of sexual activity that was in their culture. This speaks to all sorts of, and to limit the term to only mean one thing is convenient if you're trying to make a case, 
It's just not historically true, okay? More than you wanted on ancient Greek, but I think it's important. Two more and we're done. First Corinthians 6, 8 through 11. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, I just need to see, nor the greedy. So before we look at the list, look at the whole list. Nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swimmers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. We're going to look at this in depth, but I want you to see what he's reminding them is there were some in the church that were either uh, lesbian or gay in practice and they turned to follow Jesus. Oh, some were swindlers, thieves, greedy. (laughs) they They were all messed up. That is what he was saying. Some of you followed all these practices, but God changed you. He rescued you because of Jesus. You are not the same person anymore. Now, what we don't want to hear in today's culture is that he includes LGBTQ within that framework of saying you were and now you are. Now that's going to speak to identity. I don't want to confuse you, but next week we're going to look at the reality is that when the Bible is speaking about human sexuality, it is defining clearly what a person is and isn't. And in today's society, we are redetermining who we are. Which you just need to know, we need to be careful as we talk about these issues and these subjects, because in our cultural view, I can define what I am. And in the biblical worldview, you are who God created you to be. And you're invited to live as God created. So when we speak about this, we want to be very thoughtful and not cavalier. And we want to be understanding, but we need to know that a biblical worldview and a current cultural worldview, we're not even starting at the same place. So it's no, it's no shock that we miss each other in conversation Because when I say pizza and you say pizza, we ain't talking about the same thing. Some of you are thinking Domino's, that ain't pizza. That's bread and tomato sauce. So when I say pizza and you say pizza, we're we're literally, I'm, I'm not kidding, we are not talking about the same thing. So before we discuss the topic of pizza, we need to clarify our terms of what pizza is and what pizza isn't so we can have an honest discussion about this beautiful gift and this beautiful meal. I, I, I say that jokingly, but what we need to begin with is actually a conversation with our friends about the beginning and, and get on the same page in terms of what we mean by our language because I wanna hear people and I wanna understand what they're really saying and not saying. And then I want people to understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. And this is gonna require thoughtfulness and maturity, and God calls us to thoughtfulness and maturity. So this is good. Okay. All I want to see about this list is the list is big. Idolatry, theft, greed, drunkenness, slander, swindlers don't inherit the kingdom of God. 
which is not a good thing. And so while it does include sexual immorality, I just want us to see that's just one thing. So we need to be careful before we start Bible bashing and hitting people with scripture because if you're greedy, you're in the same camp. And you may not be greedy, I am. And I'm struggling to follow the way of Jesus and not be greedy. So, so we're all in need of a savior. Final, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. And then I, I got a couple of practical thoughts and we're gonna respond in worship. 1 Timothy 1 says, and this is Paul speaking to a young pastor leader. He says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, unholy and irreligious. And then he describes them for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murders, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching or doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Here's my only point. While it does say that practicing homosexuality is sinful, it also says murder is and the trading of human life and lying. So while it is on the list, I want us to be very careful and thoughtful before we start thumbing Bible verses to people, forgetting that the sin lists are wide. And the sin lists to remind us of how sinful all of us are and how much we need a savior. Okay, what do we do this week? Because I'm gonna get to the Q&A next week, but I can't leave you hanging. That would not be loving. So just a few things and hang with me. I, I, you've been doing real well, but hang with me. Don't, don't lose it now. We can make two mistakes here if we're not careful. One, we can make gay, quote unquote, the sin. The big one, the worst one, the one that's easy to highlight as part of the list. And then when we do this, we minimize that the lists have all sorts of things that are considered sinful and that's wrong and that takes the Bible out of context and it could be very unhelpful. So that's mistake number one. Mistake number two, we can avoid, explain away, minimize, or reinterpret what the scriptures are teaching. And friends, that's what's happening increasingly in the West. Now, outside of Western Christianity, the rest of global Christianity are looking, us, looking at us in disbelief. They're literally, I have real conversations with leaders from around the world saying, help me to understand what's happened in the West. They once believed the Bible and thought submitting your life to Holy Scripture and a holy God as seen in the person of Jesus is the call of the Christian. And now when the culture goes against what the Bible is calling us to, we're reinterpreting the Bible. And, and, and I would say that is a challenge in our day. If you're interested, I would encourage you to read Preston Sprinkle's book because he, he, he lays it out with thoughtfulness and clarity and, and conviction. Uh, so next Sunday, I wanna spend time looking at the implications because it's the implications that really matter. But let's, the guardrails of this is we don't wanna make this the sin and start finger pointing. That's ungodly. We don't wanna neglect what the Bible says and try to reinterpret God into our own image. And by the way, that is the nature of idolatry. To create God 
in an image that is untrue or incomplete. And for me to twist the Bible is to put up idols. And that's, that's against the heart of God. We need to remember that this is about people, not issues. And that's why I even love the title of the book, uh, Preston Sprinkle's book, because it speaks to the love that we're supposed to have. Homosexuality is not an issue. It's about people. So next week, we want to look at Jesus and how did Jesus communicate with people who had a differing worldview? How did Jesus treat people who were different than him, thought different than him, lived different than him? And if we're going to uphold the Bible, we need to do it in a Jesus way. And what you may find shocking about Jesus is he spends an, an inordinate amount of time with people who are not living to the Bible standard. And he has no problem with it. And he's known, slang terms, as a drunkard because he's spending time with people who drink too much. And is inappropriate to be a Jewish rabbi because he touches people who are ritually, ceremonially, religiously unclean. And he touches them. And he eats with people who have terrible reputations, which in their culture, to eat with someone who had a negative reputation was to accept them and to become one of them. And Jesus is hanging out with prostitutes, not for cheap sex, but because he saw them as people. Not their identity, not their title, not their sin. He, he's with people. So here's where we want to thread the needle, not make it the sin, not ignore it. And this is where the love of people is going to be the most important ingredient in our life. So if you do not care about people who are unlike you, you are not going to represent Jesus well. If you literally don't care about people and you just want to be right, then you are going to misrepresent Jesus. Because Jesus does not lower the truth, but he's willing to be called something he's not for the sake of loving people. And I want to be known as that. People who are gay most often leave the church not because of theology issue or biblical disagreement, mostly the church because they don't feel loved and they feel shamed and looked down on and joked about and talked about. Okay, I, 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 know, I, know, I know attention spans in today's world are short, but yours are long. And so I need you to capture this one. The other framework you need to see before we go and I send you to your community groups is we need to remember that there is a difference between same-sex attraction and gay relationship. Some are attracted to the same sex. Some are attracted to both sexes. Uh, some feel comfortable in their maleness. Some don't. Some feel discomfort in the body that they were born in. Now, contrary to popular opinion, there is no definitive scientific data that confirms anyone is born with same-sex attraction or that it's a byproduct of society or that it's a mix of both. 
There's a lot of discussion. There's just no scientific data in either of the directions. Here's what we have. We have from the Bible that God created the male and female. We also have in the Bible that very quickly, male and female sinned and dishonored God, and that's impacted all of life. And here's what we know. Some are attracted to the same. Some are attracted to others. Some feel welcome in their body. Some don't. Yeah, and this is where you have to be clear. If this, for some of you, many of you, this is all theory. Like this is interesting, but this is theory. But for some, this is not theory. This is your reality. And so I want to release you from an unnecessary, unnecessary burden of shame because you say, I'm attracted to the same sex and I'm reading the Bible and I'm hearing Christians and, and you're feeling shame because you feel or you think. And, and there is an absolute difference between my attraction and my action. And the Bible is not saying that if you feel attraction towards the same sex, you are by default sinning because of your attraction. We all have attractions to things that dishonor God. Let's get greed back into the story. You could be attracted to hoard and not hoard. You could be attracted to telling lies because you, you look better and not lie. S- simply having a, a bent or a thinking or a feeling or a compulsion, it, that is not sin. James 1.13. When tempted, one should not say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when, notice, they're dragged away by their own desires and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So there, there is a place to say, you know, this is, I've always felt this way. And you're not to be shamed for that. Um, At the same time, the scriptures clearly do not condone gay activity and and gay relationships. It it doesn't. Again, already I, I realize I have just bucked up against every statement in every company that you work in. And and this is the world we live in. Oh, this is the world of Corinth. We think we're the first ones under the sun. Corinthians is relevant to us because this is the world that Paul writes to. The Jesus people were small and had no voice. They weren't even a recognized religion. And what they were saying was there's one God whose name is Jesus. And that was the one thing that Rome would not tolerate. That you believe there's only one God in one way. And this is the good news that grew in their city and within 300 years turned the Roman culture upside down. The good news changed lives, but at the beginning, it sounded like terrible news. And so here we live in Portland and and we need to represent Jesus well. So what do we want? We want to be a supportive community. So some of you... now. You say, some of you. I actually know people in this church that this is their story, okay? And I'm not pointing anyone out, but I actually know you. 
And I've actually had conversations with people in our community that this is their family story. And we want to be a supportive community and a community that learns to listen. We want to try as hard as we can to see where people are coming from because we want to honor them. Now, there's a difference between saying, I want to see where you're coming from so I can bash you. But we actually want to become a people who listen to learn and listen to grow and actually listen and find out and ask good questions. We want to help people. So, and then this is all easy for a straight guy to say, okay? So call me out. I don't have a same-sex attraction, but I know many people who do, and I love them. I don't think less of them. I'm not crying because I'm sad about it. I'm just caught up in the reality of there is a time where I actually thought less of them. I, by nature, want to be right all the time. Because I am right all the time. It's my bent. I'm, I'm not saying it's Christian. But I, in my mind, I default to being right until I'm thoroughly proven unright. But here's the problem. I've, that, I, that's my default. I'm not saying that's good. But when it comes to sexuality, I have been more interested in winning the argument than hearing the person. And that's, that sounds good. It's actually not Jesus. Jesus loves the person. And in listening, he opens the door to speak God's truth and invite them into life with God. And so I want to learn to be more listening. And that doesn't mean I'm going to change what the Bible says to fit your experience. And so it does go both ways, doesn't it? That we want to love people so well that they're willing to have honest conversations knowing that they will be heard and they will be understood and there will be points where we will honestly agree to disagree, but we won't dishonor them and we won't belittle because they matter to God, okay? Now, what are we going to hit next week? I just want you to get a preview. How do we have meaningful conversations with Christians or churches who affirm LGBTQIA as in line with Scripture? This is, the, this is the unique nuance of our days. Many churches are saying uh, to live gay is in line with the way of Jesus. How do we have conversations there? Do I attend a gay wedding? What about policies at school at work? What do we do? What about gender transitioning and gender fluidity? How do we discuss our differences as Christians? There's no chapters and verses for lots of these, but there's biblical principle to ground our thinking and our feeling and our living. But rather than that, let's end here. What does it mean to believe God and what he has said in the scriptures? That's what we need to think. This week in your community group, what does it mean to believe God in the Bible? What does that look like? For some of us, this can feel gut-wrenching because this is my cousin, this is my wife or husband, this is my child, this is my neighbor, this is my best friend. What does it mean to believe God and what he has said? And what does it mean to obey what God has said? And what do I do 
when I know I ought to obey what God has said and I don't feel like it? What do I do? We invite God to help us. Why don't you stand on your feet if you would? You've been amazing. Thank you for listening so carefully. I encourage you. Uh, I, this is gonna sound totally selfish. I encourage you to watch this or listen again. Because the first time you're hearing, you probably blocked out a few things because your brain was processing like, I don't know. Uh, and then if you wanna have conversations with anyone in our church, anyone in our leadership team, I invite you to do that. If you wanna talk with me about it, I am happy to do it and listen to everything that you have to say because you've heard it all. I, I don't have anything to say other than next week I have a lot more to say. Lord, we stand before you humbled by the list of things that dishonor you. And we say we're guilty of a lot of them. And yet you called us because of Jesus to be free in you. And you say that we were these things and now we're washed, made clean and whole. And so, Lord, we wanna experience your freedom in all areas of life. And so we're needy and we come to you, God. Lord, forgive us for areas of our disobedience. And now we wanna turn to you and, and trust that your way is the better way. Help us, Lord Jesus, to live for you. And this week, God, we invite you to help us to represent you well and to love as you loved and share as you shared so that people will know you and you could do the transforming because we, we can't even do that anyway. We need you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, I invite you. We have resp response prayer every week. If God's just stirring something in your heart, I encourage you to, as we sing these songs, and as we go to the table for communion, to just go and just step away from where you are and be with God and someone on our team just gonna pray God's love and blessing over your life. I encourage you to do that. You can go now or during the singing, uh, but let's respond in worship before we take the bread and the cup.